Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. And what you see here, we're starting with the going down to Egypt, uh, Israel going down to Egypt, and all the way till the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. What is really important in this, uh, in this uh, calendar of events here is to see the work of God through history. Um, essentially, you can look at it this way. Uh, Israel goes down to Egypt, then God brings Israel out of Egypt into the promised land where they labor to create the kingdom of David. After the kingdom of David is created, there are a series of prophets who are sent to, the, to Israel, chiefly in its two kingdoms, because after Solomon, the kingdom is, breaks into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's waves of prophets that go towards them and tell them, repent or else, repent or else. doesn't matter anymore. The curses of the covenant are going to be triggered and you're going to be sent out to exile. And in 587, the, the temple of Jerusalem is completely destroyed. They're sent out into exile. They're in exile in, uh, under the Babylonian regime. We get to Daniel. And last time I brought something about some calculations. I'm going to get back to them when I get to Daniel. But Daniel knew from Jeremiah that the exile should last 70 years. 70 years have come, 70 years have gone. They're still in exile. He prays to God. He says, God, what's up? The time is up. Why can't we go back? The archangel Gabriel is sent to him to tell him, Daniel, you, the, the, the heart of your people is so hard that 449 more years of exile have decreed your people, at the end of which a Messiah will come, he will be cut off, the temple will be destroyed. And when you work out the calculations, the year where this is supposed to happen is 3080. In fact, the Essenes, who were contemporary of Jesus, who were living outside of Jerusalem in the writings, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you would see that there was expectation that are part of the coming of the Messiah. Because that was the fullness of time. That was the time where everything was to be accomplished. And that's why Jesus came right around that time. It was all according to the covenant that God had established with his people, according to the blessings and the curses that he worked out with them. And as I said, we will be going through this between now all the way through till the book of Revelation because it plays a very important role in helping us understand the timing of the events in the book of Revelation itself. Tonight what I would like to focus on are the ten plagues of Egypt. 
Um, the reason why I'd like to do that is because the ten plagues of Egypt are very prevalent in the imagery used in the book of Revelation. And if you get to the book of Revelation without understanding the ten plagues, their meanings, their symbolism, what they represent, much will be missed. So, we're going to go through the, the ten plagues one by one. I'm going to show you the progression and the logic that is inherent to those plagues. There's a definite logic to the way the plagues are being served and the reason why they're being served. And we call this the divine pedagogy. Pedagogy, pedagogue is teacher, pedagogy is teaching. It's the way God teaches us about who he is and who we are. We begin with in Exodus chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. There's something very important here that is, going to, that is going to play a very important role for us in the book of Revelation. In this chapter, God says something rather interesting to Moses. He says to Moses, verse 1, The Lord answered him, meaning Moses, See, I have made you, you, singular Moses, as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall act as your prophet. I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall act as your prophet. The reason why this is important is because it touches on the hierarchy between us and God. In the Mosaic Law, you had the people going to, Pharaoh, to, to Aaron the priest. Aaron the priest did not go directly to God. Aaron the priest went to Moses. Moses did not go directly to God. Moses went to the angels. The angels went directly to God. Alright? So there's this, there's this hierarchy that exists between God and us, where God is truly remote. And in the book of Revelation, twice, the apostle John um, falls down on the floor to worship an angel. And in both instances, the angel tell, tells him, you must not do that. You must not do that. That's a very important distinction. Because angels, in the past, that is in the Old Testament, did not tell men not to worship them. They let men worship them. Because people who were in the Old Covenant were truly leagues away from those from the New Covenant. If you recall our conversation on the New Covenant and the plan of God for us, this plan where he wants, uh, he wants us to live by, our, by his supernatural life, effectively taking our human nature and giving it a supernatural nature, one that is divine. So there's an, an, almost an infinite distance between the people of the New Covenant and the people of the Old Covenant. And that's why Jesus would say of John the Baptist that he's the greatest of prophets, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Because truly, the difference is, is almost infinite. Because it is, uh, by our sharing in the nature of Jesus Christ, he's sharing his, his divinity with our humanity, and us, our humanity with his divinity, that effectively transforms us into children of God which the Old Testament did not have. Therefore, in his divine pedagogy, God is doing a couple of things. The first one, to the Hebrews themselves, he's basically saying, there's this distance between you and me. There's this channel of communication, but there's a distance. I'm not yet living in your midst. And to the, he and to the, and to the Egyptians who live 
in a world of paganism, essentially a world dominated by the, by the worship of demons, God stoops down to their level and proposes to them a model that they can understand through which he will, through the ten plagues, free them, or at least give them that moment of grace by which they can be freed from the adoration of the demons. And since a divine pedagogy on the part of God as a father who looks at his children who are wayward and he's trying to bring them back to him. But he has to start at a level they can understand. You always have to keep that in mind when you read these things because otherwise if you think that this is what God wants to do ideally, in the ideal sense, it, makes, it, it, it can confuse you. Why would God tell Moses, I'll make you like a God to Pharaoh? Because this is what Pharaoh understands. This is what Pharaoh understands, and therefore he, God is going to stoop down to a level that men understand. And he will speak to us through what we sense and what we see. Oftentimes you'll find that Catholics or convert to Catholicism, Catholics who were lukewarm and woke up to the faith, oftentimes have this initial excitement where they're really looking for sensitive things. They want their senses to be fed. Hence, the charismatic movement may be there to help them. They may want to go to places where it is said that Our Lady is appearing, Medjugorje being one of them. They will go through all these levels of sense level. That they're being fed at a level they understand. And is that the best way? Is that the most excellent way? Is that the ideal way that God wants to feed them? No. No. The most excellent way He has for them is very, very unappealing to the senses, it's the Eucharist. There's nothing appealing to the senses for the Eucharist. But that's when God weans us from attachment to material things and lifts us up in the spiritual things. Right? And you would notice that those who are progressing in their faith are actually looking for things that are simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler, where silence plays a major role. Right? But that's, such is God. God takes us where we are and He starts bringing us gently towards Him. You shall tell Him all that I command you, in turn your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave the land. So you notice, God speaks to Moses, and the way God speaks to Moses is through an angel, through a theophany, through an angelic appearance. God speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to Pharaoh, Pharaoh speaks to the people. Okay, keep that structure in mind. It's important. So, the, once this is in place, once the roles are established, we see the first plague, plague which is the water turned into blood. And that's in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17 through 22. Exodus 7, 17 through 22. The Lord now says, This is how you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water of the river with the staff I hold, and it shall be changed into blood. The fish in the river shall die, and the river itself shall become so polluted that the Egyptians will be unable to drink its water. The Lord then said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, their streams and canals and pools, all their supplies of water, that they may become blood. Throughout the land of Egypt there shall be blood, even in the wooden pails and stone jars. And so, Aaron, actually Moses, did not strike the water himself. It was Aaron, the high priest. Why? Again, the importance of the liturgy. Everything God does is liturgical. Alright? Everything God does God does is liturgical. It's the liturgy because the liturgy is a divine pedagogy in which he teaches us about heaven. Okay? 
And so it is always, all the actions of, of uh, God in Egypt are liturgical in their, in their, uh, in their makeup. So when Aaron, Aaron is, who's Aaron? Aaron is going to be the high priest, right? He's the prophet right now, but he's going to also become the high priest, right? And he tells him he's the one who strikes the water with his, with his staff, and so he does, and the water turns into blood. Now there's an interesting uh, thing here that happens. The Egyptian magicians did the same by their magic arts, so Pharaoh, so Pharaoh remained obstinate and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord foretold. So the Egyptian magicians are not... They're not a bunch of um, fools, all right? They do have power. And the power is given to them through their worship of demons. And so they do the same thing. They match what God does. Remember the first time, uh, um, the first thing that uh, Moses did is took his staff, placed it in front of Pharaoh, and the staff turned it into a snake. And the, the Egyptian magicians were able to do the same thing. Now here, again... Moses, uh, Pharaoh turns the water into blood and they do the same. Now, why does God turn the water into blood? That's the first question we have to ask ourselves. What is he trying to convey? What is he trying to tell us when he turns the water into blood? What is blood? Blood, for the, for the ancients, is life. So life is in the blood. Alright? If you take something and you empty it from its blood, or you let its blood come out, what have you done to that thing? You killed it. What is the Nile? The Nile is not just a river to the Egyptians. The Nile is a god. Okay? And the Nile is worshipped. Um, so by striking the Nile, what did they do? Effectively. They killed the Nile. Right? They killed the Nile. If you read Egyptian... Um, mythology, you will see there's always this struggle between the different gods, and there's a hierarchy of gods, who's more powerful than who. And by being able to strike the Nile and kill the Nile, God is affirming his power over the Nile. Okay. To the Egyptians, because it's, it, it, would be, it would be, in a sense, it would be a mistake on our part to look at it purely naturally. If you looked at it naturally, most of that stuff will not make sense. Today, our approach to nature is essentially rational. We look at nature, we understand nature for what it is, and we do not impart to nature uh, mystical powers, while well, usually we don't do that, unless, of course, we're reading the, uh, the, the, the astrology. Right? And by the way, if any one of you here is still reading that stuff, you better stop, because that's a sin. Right? It's explicitly forbidden by God. Or to give any credence to astrology or signs or whatever. Okay? If you haven't done that yet, stop right now. Okay? And go confess it. You know, the signs, the Virgo and uh, what sign are you? Yeah. Those things. Yeah, that's an explicit sin. Right? Because we're doing two things. We are adoring the creature instead of the creator, thinking that stars have influence in our lives. And we are also uh, giving into we're giving ourselves to, um, to, to, to essentially to demons. Because you, at the end of the day, you have really have two camps. There's no middle ground. You're on one side or the other, and that's it. So, um, but, but our, our understanding of nature is effectively a gift of Christ. You understand? What frees us, what frees us, what makes us really children of God is truth. 
it is truth that, that sets us free. Right? Jesus Christ himself said so. Follow me, I will lead you to the truth, the truth will set, will set you free. Therefore, one of the things that he did for us is set us free from all these vain beliefs into powers of nature. So to our mind today, we think, we look back and we think, huh, those poor Egyptians. However, today, there are certain programs, there are certain programs out there on the radio which are very popular, and people call into those programs, and the stuff they come up with would make the Egyptians look tame in comparison to what people believe in today. In other words, as soon as you drop out of Christianity, you will go back into superstition. Most atheists are superstitious. That's the makeup we have. We can't be neutral. or either on one side or the other. So keep that in mind when you look at this stuff. You see this and you understand that God is stooping down to their level and talking to them at a level they can understand. He effectively polluted the river. Now what happens when he pollutes the river? He killed, so theologically, their God is killed. So that provokes a crisis. You understand? If you're really an Egyptian who takes your faith seriously into those gods, and you see one of your gods killed, that is going to provoke a crisis. Right? Which is a moment of grace. But, if you're an Egyptian, like most American today, who think of religion marginally, but is really going after material things, what does the pollution of the, of the Nile do to you? The dough just tumbled. You lost your stocks. You understand? It's an economic crisis that just hit you. Right? So essentially, God hits where it hurts. Why? Because we're not listening. We're not listening, so He makes us listen. He hits where it hurts. But you notice, by, by turning the Nile into blood, he actually hits something that is really extrinsic outside of the Egyptians themselves, or their families. It's a material, it's an economic crisis. Right? That's where it starts. Now, blood, the word blood itself appears about 19 times in the book of Revelation. To show you why this imagery from, from um, um, the plagues is important, we're going to look at the relevant ones. Revelation 6.12 Revelation 6.12 Then I watched while he broke open the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned as black as dark sackcloth and the whole moon became like blood. The whole moon became like blood. What does that mean for the moon to become like blood? Well, you apply the same principle we just applied to the Nile. Okay? For the ancients, the moon was worshipped. When you essentially turn the moon into blood, what have you done? You've killed the moon, right? So again, there's a crisis of faith for those who do not believe, but also the moon, the sun, and the stars were part of what? What did, what did the ancients use the moon, the sun, and the stars for? Time. Telling time, right? Ma month, month. The word month comes from moon. They, t they told time. So when you essentially turn the moon into blood, what have you done? Exactly. You, 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 so what is it? It's time's up. Right? So it's deconstruction. It's the end of an age. Alright? So when you start understanding the way the imagery works, it helps you penetrate the text from within instead of 
trying to find some meaning outside of it. Revelation 8-7, when the first one blew his trumpet, there came hail and, fixed, and fire mixed with blood, which was hurled down to the earth. And again, a third of the land was burned along with a third of the trees along the green grass. So now it's the land that is being burned, and the land is going through a crisis, and the land is being uh, uh, chastised. Eight verse, Revelation 8, 8, 9 When the second angel blew his trumpet something like a large burning mountain was hurled into the sea a third of the sea turned to blood a third of the creature living in the sea died and a third of the ships were wrecked right? So you can see how this imagery hits various elements of reality of physical reality out there and every time there's this process through which God is actually putting an end to something stopping something for our benefit Revelation 11.1.6 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who are worshipping in it. But exclude the outer court of the temple, do not measure it, for it has been handed over to the Gentiles who will trample the holy city for 42 months. And then it says, verse 3, I will commission my two witnesses to prophesy for those 1260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. In this way, anyone wanting to harm them is sure to be slain. They have the power to close up the sky so that no rain can fall during the time of their prophesying. They also have power to turn water into blood and to afflict the earth with any plague as often as they wish. So these are the, two, the famous two witnesses from chapter 11 of the book of Revelation and clearly an indication to uh, Isaiah and to Moses. By the two olive trees, the olive tree represents Israel. The lampstands, again, the liturgical imagery here. But the first one, they have power to shut off the skies, meaning there's no rain for 42 months, which is about three and a half years, the time during which Isaiah prayed so that rain may not fall when Jezebel was queen and he shut off the sky. The sky became like bronze. And to turn water into blood, clearly Moses. We'll come back to Revelation and work on this passage. That's a particularly difficult passage to work on. But again, you can see the imagery of, of the plagues right in the middle of the book of Revelation. Again, Revelation 17:6-1. I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the holy ones and on the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. So, so every time you see this imagery of blood reappearing, recurring, the one from which it's drawn has been killed, has, has been hurt, has not functioned the way it's supposed to be functioned. Right? That's what, we, what you need to keep in mind. And, and, and in the book of Revelation, as I said, it will appear over and over again. But if you keep that in mind, it will help you understand why it is so. The second plague, the frogs. That's in Exodus 8, verse 1 through 3. The Lord then told Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand and your staff over the streams and canals and pools to make frogs overrun the land of Egypt. Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by the magic arts. They too made frogs overrun the land of Egypt. Why frogs? Well, we're not completely sure, but I think that the understanding of uh, the, the role that the frog played for the Egyptians may help shed a, a light here. For the Egyptians, the frog is Heket. And she was a goddess of childbirth, creation and grain germination. She was depicted as a frog or a woman with the head of a frog betraying a connection with water. As a water goddess, she was also a goddess of fertility, 
or she was particularly associated with the later stages of labor. In this way, the title of servants of Heket may have been a title applied to her priestesses who were trained as midwives. The ancient Egyptians saw thousands of frogs appear all along the Nile at certain times of the year. This appearance of the reptile came to symbolize fruitfulness and coming life. So to the Egyptians, the appearance of the frogs along the, 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 the river Nile was a sense of fruitfulness and of life. However, when those frogs appear by the thousands, leave the river and attack, two things happen. The first one, again, the goddess Hecate has gone crazy. You understand? In other words, the goddess is not acting according to the way she's supposed to act. She's attacking them. And secondly, what it means is there's a disruption in the normal process of life. The normal process of birthing children or in the normal process of fertility. It has gone amok. It isn't according to its true nature. Now, there is definitely a connection between, between um, I mean, the spiritual is always related to the physical. We, we, can, we, can only, we cannot separate them. In Revelation uh, chapter 16 verse 13, we read, I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These were demonic spirits who performed signs. They went out to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God the Almighty. So the frogs in, in the book of Revelation appear as unclean as demons. And hence, again, this relationship between what the Egyptians were adoring and the behavior of the frogs uh, signal the divine pedagogy of God trying to free them from their beliefs. Right, so you, you need to see the plagues not just as God punishing the Egyptians for the benefit of the Hebrews. It is God punishing the Egyptians for the benefit of the Hebrews and of the Egyptians. Right? The third plague. But then again here, as I said, the, the, the magicians were able to do the same thing. So, so far, the magicians were able to... Um, when Moses turned the staff into a snake, they were able to do the same thing. When he caused the Nile to be filled with blood, they were able to do the same thing. When they got the frogs out of the water, they were able to do the same thing. It tells you something about the power of demons. In fact, it tells you something about the power of angels in general. That they, are, they have a great power over nature, but they don't have power to create. Angels do not have power to create. The first one is really can be troublesome if you think about it when they actually turned their staff, the magician's staffs, into snake. Because as I just said, they don't have power to create. Whereas God made a snake out of a staff, what they did in their case was to substitute the staffs for snakes. They, they can act with blinding speed. They can move objects with blinding speed so fast that we cannot see it. Right? And they're much more powerful than us in this way. So they can resort to tricks to make us believe that they did something when they really actually did a cheap trick on us. Right? Turning the blood, water into blood is something they can do because they, they, can, they, can, they can pump blood into water. They can do that. Getting frogs out, they can do that. Right? They have control over physical elements. The fourth plague is flies. No, I'm sorry. The third plague is gnats. The gnats. It's Exodus 8, 12-15. Thereupon the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron to stretch out his staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may be turned into gnats 
Did you say gnats or gnats? That's what I thought. Gnats. Throughout the land of Egypt. Now, what is God going to do? God is going to take the dust and turn it into gnats. That's a creative act on his part. Right? He's creating gnats from dust. They did so. Aaron stretched on his hand and with his staff he struck the dust of the earth and gnats came upon man and beast. <laughs> the dust of the earth was turned into gnats throughout the land of Egypt. Though the magicians tried to bring forth gnats by their magic arts, they could not do so. Right? So the buck stops there for them. Because this is an act that is absolutely and completely that of God. Only God can create. No one can. Right? Because He is our creator. We're creatures. Right? So we do not have the power to create. And the interesting effect on the magicians is that they tried it. Right? Because up to this point, to the magicians... The God of, Pharaoh, the God of uh, Moses is just another God. You understand? He's just, okay, so they have their gods, he's got his God, and we have this boxing match going on here. Our gods versus your God. Alright? Well, this is not, nothing new to them, because, the, the, as I said, the court of the gods is fiercely competitive. Gods kill gods, and God is after gods, and gods overtake gods, because, after all, demons are certainly not a, a happy bunch, to say the least. Right? But now they perceive something entirely different. Through their own magic art, through their own uh, um, demonic work, they perceive something entirely different. And they say, This is the finger of God. They recognize that there's a reality entirely different from anything we've seen before. Right? So you see how God works and even to these wretched who are so attached to their magic black art, can, God can still reach them through the working of the Holy Spirit and give them a more illumination for them to see the truth. How did they see the truth? They saw the truth when they reached the limit of their ability. When they went as far as they could and God overtook them. They saw the truth. Because after all, those magicians, in a certain sense, were honest. In other words, they were, they were not hypocritical. They just believed in their magic, worked it through to its end, and saw that what Moses was doing was far superior to what they could do. And they were then brought to recognize God in what he's done. And in a sense, all scientists ought to, be, ought to act in the same way. That's why the church is always jealously guarding science. The church believes in science and protects science because the church knows that science leads to God if you're honest about it. The church is never afraid of science. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Yet Pharaoh remained obstinate and would not listen to them just as the Lord had foretold. Now what are gnats? What do they represent? What do they mean? Why does he bring up gnats? So, so far we've seen what? We've seen the water turn into blood, death, We've seen those, those frogs coming out, signaling confusion, signaling a, a lack of order, disorder, signaling things are not as they ought to be, and then we see gnats. Wisdom, now Sirach chapter 10 verse 11, we read, When a man dies, he inherits corruption, worms and gnats and maggots. So what are the, the gnats a symbol of? They're a symbol of corruption, of death that is coming. So effectively, the third plague is acting as a prophecy to what is yet to come. Because up to that point, no one really got hurt. 
right? The most important thing which are men and their cattle in the land have not been hurt. And that's what the third plague signals. Fourth plague, flies. Verse 17 in um, Exodus chapter 8, 17 through 20. If you will not let my people go, I warn you, I will lose swarms of flies upon you and your servants and your subjects and your houses. The houses of the Egyptians and the very ground on which they stand shall be filled with swarms and of flies. You notice now how now it's, it's, it's starting to invade your entire house, right? It's coming, to, it's coming to them. And the interesting thing is that he makes an exception on the, of the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen is where the Hebrews were living and the, and, and the flies will not go there. Right? Up to that point, it was covering the whole land. But now he's going to start to separate between the two. It's again, part of his pedagogy. He's starting to tell him, if you accept me as your God, if you understand who I am, it's not going to reach you. But if you, if you don't, it will. And you bet that this message went out to the Egyptians, and you bet those Egyptians who were smart and who were thinking about it went to the land of Goshen. By going to the land of Goshen, you just don't physically go there. As I said, the physical and the spiritual are always connected. You're not just going to the land of Goshen. You're basically saying, I want to be part of the people of God. Okay? That's why it's a moment of grace. That's why those curses are effectively a moment of grace to the Egyptians because they open the avenue for them to repent and to go back and live according to God's ways. And then again, thick swarms of flies entered the house of Pharaoh and the house of his servants throughout Egypt, the land was infested with flies. The fifth plague, death of livestock. So now you can see it's hitting closer to home. We're going from the outside to the inside. Right? From that which is most remote to that which is most close, most intimate. Alright? Now, up to this point, he added, he, God has not touched anything that was really, that belonged to the, to the Egyptians directly. Now he's going to. He's, he's starting to hit the cattle. And I'd like to point out to you one very important element. That you cannot rely on individualism when you understand this text. You cannot think that all that matters is me and God and nothing else. That faith is between me and God because all that is happening to all of Egypt is due to one man, Pharaoh. You understand? God does not work on an individual basis. God is family. He works on a family basis. Let me give you an example to see what I'm talking to you about. Let's assume that you have a family where, for whatever reasons, Maybe because of ignorance, maybe because of misunderstanding, maybe because of lack of faith. A man told his wife, who was pregnant with their fifth child, that we have too many kids, we can't afford this one, it's going to be too much for us, have an abortion. And let's assume that she goes ahead and does that. She gets an abortion. Who do you think is going to be affected by that act? The entire family. And how do you see it? Division dissension, breakup. They can't get close anymore. It breaks down the family. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? That's how it works. We're all connected. We're all related. And that's why it's so important for us to understand this in the proper view. 
we care for each other, we pray for each other because we're family. And my sins can cause you to suffer. Because we're family, we're related. That's why we go and confess to a priest. I'm not just confessing to God, I'm also confessing to the whole church and I'm asking the whole church to forgive me for what I have brought in suffering to the church. We're family. That's very important. Now, of course, we, uh, our rebellion in this century is precisely that we do not want that. You know, what do I care about the family? Just me. I did it my way. Well, we can't do that. It doesn't work this way. Right? It doesn't work this way. And here's where we have our limit. We have to face the limit of our creatorhood. We're creatures. We're not creators. We don't set the rule. He does. That's an important thing to understand. We, we do not set the rule. He created us as a family and he told us what you do affects all of you. You can't escape this reality. This is a principle that God had set forth from the day of Genesis all the way through. What you do affects all of you. If this principle was not true, understand what I'm trying to say very well. If this principle was not true, then none of us could be saved by the death of Jesus on the cross. Because you see, it works both ways. Through the sin of Adam, all of us inherited original sin. But through the blameless death of Jesus on the cross, all of us inherited eternal life. We can have it both ways, so to speak. We can say, yeah, I'll take that. But then don't hold me accountable with my action and how it impacts the rest of my brothers and sisters. It doesn't work this way. So the fifth plague is the death of livestock, Exodus 9, 1 through 6. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, that says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Notice, the God of the Hebrews. Right? Not the Israelites. Although, he will use Hebrews and later he will also speak of Israel. But, it's an important point to make here. He refers back to Eber, the great grandfather of Abraham. Let my people go to worship me. If you refuse to let them go and persist in holding them, I warn you, the Lord will afflict all your livestock in the field, your horses, asses, camels, herds and flocks with a very severe pestilence. But the Lord will distinguish between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that none belonging to the Israelites will die. And the Lord said, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this in the, in the land. And the livestock of the Egyptians died, but no, not one beast belonged to the Israelites. So now it's economic hardship. Livestock back then were the main resources for people, right? So when he hit the livestock, he basically hit the, the economic the uh, economic, the source of, of, of um, revenue they had. And then it follows by the festering boils in, in Exodus 9, verse 1 through 11. Yeah, 8, thank you. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of ashes from the kiln, and let Moses throw them toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and becomes boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. So now you see the boils are not only touching the beast, but touching the men. Alright? So after taking, taking the riches, the, the, the material assets, he's now inflicting diseases. 
So they took ashes from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw them toward heaven, and became boils breaking out in sores on men and beasts. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Okay, so here are a couple of things that are really of importance to us. The first one is that this, this time around, it's not Pharaoh who does. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not Aaron who performs the act. It's Moses. Why? Because God is signaling the limitation of the Old Covenant. Already in the plagues, he's showing forth, essentially, it's like he's, he's, he's placing a hint that will, that will be revealed later when they get into the Old Covenant liturgy. But the Old Covenant liturgy is not enough. You need more. If it was enough, then Aaron could do it all. But he couldn't. Okay? So if Moses stands as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron is his prophet, then if you look at it by, by analogy, Moses represents who? Jesus Christ. Right? So it does take something else. It takes a power that is beyond that of Aaron. And Aaron is the high priest of the Old Covenant. God often in Scripture will do that. You will see, what we, this is something called decolonization. Essentially, an event occurs that makes no sense at the time it occurs. It makes only sense after something else has happened. And then it's revealed. A very important event took place later in Exodus, when Moses goes up the mountain and God is instructing him on the building of the ark, of the ark of the covenant. Right when God told Moses about building the ark, none of that made sense to Moses, because why would God live in a tent when he was saying all along, I will be in the midst of my people? If God is going to be in the midst of his people, why does he need a tent that he's going to put outside the camp? It made no sense to Moses. It made only sense after. Alright? So oftentimes God will say something, will do something, that on the spot is not fully revealed doesn't make complete sense. It's only later that we understand why he did what he did and the way he did it. Another good example, when Jesus went to the temple and stayed behind willingly and Mary and Joseph lost him and were in search for him for three days and found him in the temple. When they found him, she said to him, My son, why have you done this to us? Behold, your father and I were looking for you, sorrowing. And he said, a rather cryptic answer. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my, my, my father's house? And Luke explicitly states that they did not understand what he told them. Okay? That answer that Jesus, the boy, who is aware of his divinity, gave to Mary and Joseph made sense only when Mary was sorrowing for him and he was in a tomb. Through his divine pedagogy, he was preparing her for what was going to happen to her when she was going to lose him at the cross. Alright? It's over and over and over again that God acts this way and he does it through our lives. In our lives, things will happen that on the spot make no sense. It looks like God is sleeping. It looks like God doesn't care, that he's not here, that he's not listening. But it's only through the eyes of faith and much later that we understand 
why he did what he did and we see his divine wisdom. So effectively God gives us always a chance to, to grow, to walk in faith. Just as he did with Abram, take your son, your only beloved son, and take him to the place where I'll show you and you sacrifice him for me. You need to understand one thing about Abraham at that moment. It's very important. If you miss that point, you miss why it was so difficult for Abraham to do what he had to do. Not only did he have to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God promised him earlier, he swore by his name. If you remember that section, he swore by his name that through his son, through Isaac, he will bless all the nations. And now Abraham was faced with a paradox, not so much, in a sense, similar to what Mary had to be faced with when she said, I do not know man. How can I be pregnant and I do not know man? I'm, I'm going to be a virgin of my life, and yet you want me to be pregnant. Here's a paradox. And here's Abraham saying, okay, God, you want me to sacrifice Isaac, but you told me you swore by your name, and if you swore by your name, you can't, you can't miss out on your, on your, on your promise, but you swore by your name, that through my son Isaac... Because you just told me, your son, your only son, Ishmael is out, only Isaac, that you're going to bless all nations. How can you make that work? And the only conclusion that Abraham must have come to, and you see that in the reflection of the fathers, is that God will have to raise him from the dead. God will have to raise him. So the journey of faith of Abraham is not a small one. It isn't just about, okay, I have to go and sacrifice my son. How will I, by sacrificing my son, allow, make what God said happen? And after time, God works with us the same way. He wants us to journey through faith. He will not give us the answers right away. He will not tell us where we're going. He will leave us in darkness. If God loves you, He will treat you this way. Because He helps you grow in faith. Okay? To put it this way, if you feel, if you're really working hard on your faith, if you're trying to go to church every day, if you're praying, if you're going to confession, if you're doing everything you think you should be doing, and you have a sense of failure, you have a sense that you're moving backward, you have a sense that God is not hearing you, He's not listening to you, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. That's the divine pedagogy. That's what He does. I think I see it more, the question is, is that the moment for the Egyptians where they can essentially move away from this whole pantheon of gods and start to understand that there's one deity, there's only one God out there. I think, I think I see it rather as a moment of grace through which God opens up the door to the Egyptians as he would do any other nation as a precursor to what will happen with, with, uh, with them, to, to the coming of the Lord. You see, there's always a consistent teaching in the, in the Fathers that the Holy Spirit has always been at work in the world. And not only within the chosen people, within all the people of all the world, preparing all of them to accept and to receive the message of Christ. So the Greeks accepted the message of Christ and it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit amongst them. If the, if, if the French accepted it, if the Americans accepted it, if anyone accepted it, because of the Holy Spirit is working through them. Okay? And I, I see it as such because after this moment of grace closes, they will fall back into the same, the same pattern of thinking. They'll go back, they'll revert back to their gods. Because, and that's an important point, in the spiritual battle, you have demons and angels fighting. The war that erupted and when, when, when Satan rebelled and he got kicked out of, of heaven by Michael 
the archangel, he fell down to earth, not to hell, to earth. And he started going around and trying to control men. So the war between angels continued on earth. But it was never direct. There's never a battle where an angel and a demon face each other directly. The war is always through men, through, always through us. And, if you, and we'll see in Daniel, the fact that Gabriel was not able to come to Daniel swiftly, but was prevented by the prince of Persia, who clearly is a demon, and it took Michael to come down, for Gabriel to come and talk to him, you can sense that the battle is not going as well as we want it to go. It's not in the favor of the angels. Because even the angels cannot effect salvation. Even the angels cannot bring us the good news. It takes Jesus Christ. And to the angels this was not revealed. They, did not, they knew that something is going to happen, but how it was going to happen was not yet completely revealed. So they also had to work by faith, waiting for that moment. So essentially, it looked like the demons had the upper hand, because God was preparing his people. So I, I don't see it necessarily as the end of paganism, as the beginning of something new. Rather, I see it as a moment of grace. Just as in our lives, we may be... Uh, there is one person, I think a priest, who, who had an addiction to drugs, and God freed him from it, he, before he was a priest, that is. He, he was a rich man, and uh, very successful here in California, then he got into drugs, he lost everything, drugs and all, and, and got into drugs, lost everything, became a bum, he became literally homeless. And eventually went back home, and from there, he lived with his mom for some time, and then he became a priest and was, was uh, ordained a priest by John Paul II. Okay? There's moments of grace where God will reach to us where we are and shine his light on us. And either we grab it or we don't. So we see the festering boards coming down on them, and now it's starting to touch them, their skins. The seventh plague, hail. Then the Lord told Moses, early tomorrow morning, present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go to worship me. Or this time I will hurl all my blows upon you and your servants and your subjects, that you may know that there is none like me anywhere on earth. For by now I would have stretched out my hand and struck you and your subjects with such pestilence as would wipe you from the earth. But this is why I have spared you, to show you my power and to make my name resound throughout the earth. Why did he spare him? He spared him to show his power and to make his name resound in, resound in all the earth. Why? Is God after, is he on a glory trip? Is he doing that so that we, he can amass more glory? No. It is because when the name of the Lord is made known and we, when we give him glory, we are being freed from our attachment to sin. Okay? We are being freed from the attachment to sin. So, giving glory to God is our way of affirming our faith and saying, we believe in you, Lord. We believe in you. We trust you that you will do in our lives what you promised that you would do. That's why it's important. Notice what he said. Key on on this word. Don't, don't, don't ignore it. God said, well, the reason why I spared you, so that my name, to show you my power and to make my name resound throughout the earth. You already see the universal decree of God. He's not interested only in the salvation of the Hebrews. The reason why Israel is picked up as his chosen people is simply due to the fact that Israel is his firstborn. 
he's his firstborn son. If you go back to the genealogies, you will see that the genealogies of the just lead all the way through to Shem, then Eber, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are the firstborn in that sense. That's why they are chosen. That's the main reason why they're chosen. They are the firstborn. And they represent the true firstborn of God, Jesus Christ. By the way, firstborn does not imply that there is a secondborn or or a thirdborn. It only implies the first male that breaks the womb. That's the definition of a firstborn. So sometimes you hear some Protestants would say, well, you see, Luke is talking about Mary having her firstborn. That implies she had other kids. No, it doesn't. It only implies that we're talking about her first male child. And that's it. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, I warn you that tomorrow at this hour I will rain down such fierce hail as there has never been in Egypt from the day the nation was founded up to the present. Therefore, order all your livestock and whatever else you have in the open fields to be brought to a place of safety. Whatever man or beast remains in the fields and is not brought to shelter shall die when the hail comes upon them. Here, they're given a choice. Listen to my word. Do as I tell you. You'll be fine. Don't listen. It'll hit you. Right? As part of the divine pedagogy, God is opening it up, opening up a moment of salvation for the Egyptians as well as the Hebrews, both of them. He doesn't say, um, I don't believe it says only, and, and I'm not going to do it in the land of motion this time around. He said it across, uh, yeah, he said, no, that's not true. The land of Goshen, nothing happened there. So this is consistent. But in the land of Egypt, the rest of the land of Egypt, this is happening. Now, interesting, interestingly enough, verse 20. Some of Pharaoh's servants feared the warning of the Lord and heard the servants and livestock off to shelter. You see? Whereas before, before all these events took place, none of those people may have even considered or listened to the God of the Hebrews, those slaves that we have. Who would care about them and their God? Now, they do. Now they listen. Right? Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall upon the entire land of Egypt. And that's what he did. And the Lord rained down hail upon the land of Egypt. The Lord sent forth hail and peals of thunder. Lightning flashed towards the earth and the Lord rained down hail upon the land of Egypt. Lightning constantly flashed throughout the hail, such fierce hail as had never been seen in the land since Egypt became a nation. And it struck down every man and beast that was in the open throughout the land of Egypt. It beat down every growing thing and splintered every tree in the field. So now, not only the beasts, the trees, the grass is being also destroyed. See this progressive destruction from material all the way through. And then interestingly enough, the, the Pharaoh summoned Moses there and said to them, I have sinned again. The Lord is just. It is I and my subjects who are at fault. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough of God's thunder and hail. Now we'll let you go. You need to stay no longer. And so he does. Now notice that those people who are obdurate, who, are, who persist in their sins, can come to you and ask you for prayers can come to you and ask you for prayers. They can admit in, on one level their sin, they're admitting to their sin, but it's only practical. In other words, you need to understand the nature of sin, what it does to the heart. Pharaoh is seeing that his obstinacy is bringing all that down on him. But he goes and tells Moses, I've sinned against the Lord. This is just a political ploy on his part. He has no intention of repenting. There's no repentance. He's being diplomatic. 
is trying to weasel his way out of it. And yet, Moses listens to him, prays to God, and God stops. So one thing that, one lesson that we have all learned from is that you can't take answered prayers as a sign of holiness. That alone is not enough. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You can't take the fact that God answered your prayer as a sign of holiness. It doesn't mean that. It could be that He's answering your prayer and He's answering your prayer but not for your own benefit, for someone else's benefit. Okay? So the church distinguishes between two types of graces. Right? Pastoral graces, graces given to feed others. And then, sanctifying grace, the grace that works through your own heart, for your own benefit. And that's why you have to be very careful with signs and wonders, because they can be confusing. Now, um, the word thunder appears nine times in the book of Revelation. Um, I'm going to go through some of them because, okay, so what is, what is thunder that we've seen in the book of Revelation? The presence of thunder indicates what? Indicates God's judgment. God's wrath coming down. That's the purpose of thunder. Every time you hear thunder, you know that as, you know, God, is, God is going to effectively execute judgment. Here's an interesting little fact that may not be well known from those of you who know about Fatima. What happened the first time that the children were going to pray? For when the, the, on the first day when Mary appeared, right before the apparition, what did the children hear? Lightning and thunder. And what was in the sky? Nothing. It was a blue sky. Perfectly blue. Right? There was lightning and thunder and the sky was perfectly blue. That, that was a sign of God's impending judgment. And Mary was sent as a way to warn us who was to come. Alright? So especially when you hear this, uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, in the book of Revelation, that I watched while the Lamb broke open the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures cry out in a voice like thunder, come forward. So any time you hear a voice like thunder, the notion is not that you hear just thunder. The notion is that there is, what, what is spoken is in the context of a judgment. Where in the gospel do people hear thunder? Before the crucifixion. You're right, but before the crucifixion. Crucifixion was an important place. Jesus says something in John, right? And he asks his father, Father, um, glorify your name. And the father answer says, I have glorified and I'm glorified again. Right? But, but not everybody heard the, the, the voice. What did they hear instead? Thunder. Right? If your verse in scripture, you're standing there and you're hearing thunder, you better buckle up. You understand? That's how you read the signs. It's coming down. Then the angel took the, the sense, again, verse of Revelation 8.5, the angel took the censer, filled it with burning coals, from the altar and hurled it down to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Alright, so that tells you, okay, what is going to come right after is, is God's sending a judgment on, on, on earth. And, and it's, it's a consistent message throughout the book of Revelation. So I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, 
I will just stop at one which is which is interesting. Um, Revelation 18:21. Then there were lightning flashes, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. It was such a violent earthquake that there has never been one like it since the human race began on earth. The great city was split into three parts, and the Gentile cities fell. But God remembered great Babylon, giving it the cup filled with the wine of his fury and wrath. Every island fled, and mountains disappeared. Large hailstones, like huge waves, came down from the sky on people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail, because this plague was so severe. Okay? You see the imagery drawn directly from the plagues. Right? Um, we will, when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll go through this a little bit, you know, in, in, in more detail. The point that is important here I, I will, I will, that I want to make is that in 1821, it's right before the introduction of the New Jerusalem. And right before that, what God is doing is actually doing an act of deconstruction or decreation. Just as there is creation when God lays out things in place, there is decreation when he actually takes them out. And that's what this is part of. And we'll get more into, we'll get more into details of that when we, when we get there. The eighth plague, locust. First, chapter 10, 1 through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have made him and his servants obdurate, in order that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may recount to your son and grandson how ruthlessly I dealt with the Egyptians, and what signs I wrought among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So the Lord went there, so the Moses went there, and again, the sign of locust is given. Interestingly enough, there is a conversation here where Pharaoh is telling him, you, you go, but only the men. You keep the kids here and, 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 and uh, your wives. And, and says, no, Moses says, no, we all have to go. All of us. You can always use a sign, you can always use that text when you're dis- discussing with Protestant friends the idea of baptism. When they say, well, you don't have to baptize babies. Right there, God wanted all of them to go and worship Him. Right? They're, they're, they're younger, the the young and the old, everyone. Be it as it may, and locust comes comes through and eats everything. Nothing is left. And in Revelation 9, 3 through 11, we see again the imagery of locust that comes back. Except that there, locusts have really demonic features. So... Verse 3 in Revelation chapter 9, locusts came out of the smoke onto the land and they were given the same power as scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So you see the, the, the intent, even in the, in the initial uh, plague, when a locust came and ate everything, of course the intent was to, is to reach the people, is to essentially try to get them to see God's working among them. And here it's directly targeted towards the people themselves. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torment them for five months. The torment they inflicted was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person. During that time, these people will seek death, but will not find it. They will, will long to die, but death will escape them. The appearance of the locusts were like that of a horses ready for battle. On their heads, they wore what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. And they had hair like woman's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many horse-drawn chariots racing into battle. 
They had tails like scorpions with stingers. With their tails they had power to harm people for five months. And on the late great planet Earth, uh, the representation of the scorpions is, is uh, essentially uh, choppers. They, 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 they understand the scorpions, to, those locusts, to be uh, military helicopters. Well, that's one way to look at it, but I doubt that John ever thought of a helicopter when he was having this particular vision. Uh, one thing I want to say to you, this imagery that you see here of a composition of different pieces of animals, there's nothing new about it in the book of Revelation. It's actually very old. Uh, hopefully next week I'll, I'll show you in the, among the Egyptians how certain, some of their gods were also a composition of different animals. And the whole idea was to be able to showcase the power of that particular god that we're thinking about. So taking, taking different parts of animals and putting them together to represent a beast is not new in the book of Revelation. And hopefully we'll get used to this imagery being used to represent certain key aspects of a creature um, in this way. Um, and the ninth plague, darkness. So now finally we're reaching that, that point where human beings are touched really inside of themselves. We went from the outside, from the water, to, to land, to cattle, to homes, to, th to the economy being destroyed to the, the flesh suffering, but now it's the inside, it's the soul. Why? Because God puts them in complete darkness. And the darkness was so few that they could see nothing. Now, as you know, anyone who is under the influence of the evil one fears darkness, is afraid of the dark. Whereas the one who is under the banner of Jesus Christ is not afraid of darkness. The one who is under the influence of the evil one cannot sit by himself, turn off all the lights and sit down and pray. He finds it very difficult and he doesn't like it. The one who is under the banner of Jesus Christ and who has been progressing in his spiritual life relish that. He loves that. Because it is right there in the, in the complete silence where all the senses have been completely calmed down and nothing interferes that God manifests his presence. Okay. And I'll refer you to the, to the dark night of the soul by St. John of the Cross, who is the doctor of the church, who explains that very, very clearly and systematically. And others as well. Uh, for instance, introduction to devout life uh, will present that to you. Um, other, other, um, the the uh, spiritual exercises by St. Ignatius of Loyola as well. So most masters of the mystical life will, will speak of this in this way. But where you basically leave all the created world behind you and you are really wanting to be completely united with God. Uh, whereas in, in this instance, it's exactly the opposite that happens. It, you're terrified. You're completely terrified. So God now has taken away every material thing, all the comfort they could rely on, and forced them to see the wretchedness the way it is. And that has one of two effects. Either it turns them around and says, truly God is God, and as they, 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 they cry for help, just as Peter did after he betrayed Jesus, or they actually blaspheme the name of God, one way or the other. The, curse, the curses that God sends always have these effects. Either it turns people to him, or they, it actually um, confirms them in their sins. And then, the last plague, and you know it, I'm not going to be spending a lot of time on it, the death of the firstborn. What we can say about the death of the firstborn is that Pharaoh was supposed to be God. He was supposed to be a God. And how does God, Pharaoh, perpetuate his existence on earth? Through his firstborn. 
So by slaying the firstborn, he effectively, so essentially what happens is that the firstborn of Pharaoh, the one who's going to ascend to the, to the, to the throne, is already a god. Is looked upon as a god among the Egyptians. So by slaying that firstborn, essentially God is slaying the most important of all the gods of Egypt. Right? And he goes through the entire, um, the entire land. And the interesting thing is that if we were to, to have more time to study that, you would see that you had to take a lamb. It had to be without blemish. It had to be, I think, three years old, if I remember correctly. You had to uh, take the blood of the lamb and put it on the, on the, um, on the size of, the, of, of your door, whether Egyptian or, or, or Israel did not matter. Anyone who did all these things did not have his firstborn slain. Anyone who didn't do it had the firstborn slain. Right? Now the reason why all this is happening is, is very Eucharistic. Because what God is saying, the, the, the lamb without blemish is Jesus Christ who is like a lamb but without blemish, so without sin. Three years old in the prime of his life. You have to take the meat, you have to take the blood of the lamb and it's the blood of the lamb that saves your firstborn just as the blood of Christ saves you. You have to cook the lamb. So therefore it indicates that his nature is not purely human because you're taking and turning it into something else. Okay? And you have to do what? You have to eat it. You don't eat the cooked lamb. You say, I'm a vegetarian. I'm just going to have some tofu. Good luck. The firstborn dies. You had to eat the lamb. You understand? So therefore, you have to eat the lamb to attain to everlasting life. So, what we've done tonight is go through the plagues and see how the progression from the outset to the inside, there's a logic to it, there's a divine pedagogy through which God is calling the Egyptians to repent, just as he's teaching the Hebrews about who he is. Both of them are learning, both of them are seeing his wonders, and... Interestingly enough, before they leave, what did God tell the Egyptians, which actually surprises many, many exegetes, and they don't know what to do with the text. He says, go to the Egyptians, and they will give you gold before you leave. They will give you gold. Now, you read this text, you wonder, why on earth would any Egyptian give them gold? And it sounds as if it doesn't make any sense until you kind of realize that who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is a tyrant. And the Egyptians are living under what? Under a tyranny. Under an absolute tyranny where a man makes himself God. Right? And here is these people who came down, lived as slaves, who were suffering from the tyranny, and their God brought freedom, not just to them, but also opened the door to the Egyptians. So therefore the Egyptians have every interest in helping those, those Hebrews. To make it a little bit better, imagine... Europe under Nazi regime. You have the Allied forces going to Europe and doing what? Destroying everything. Right? And what are the people who live there? What do they want? Do they, do they want those Allied forces to come and to destroy everything? Yeah. Because that's how they get free. You understand? That's the psychology behind it. It's actually fairly simple. There's another part to it which is more complex. I don't have time to go through it. But I will give you a reference that I gave a number of times. It's a book by René Girard. R-E-N-E-G as in George. I-R-A-R-D. Called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. It's a hard read, but it's excellent in explaining what's going on here. 
Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, you can find it on Amazon. And there are other books who introduce you to the whole system of Girard. Incidentally, Girard was a literary critic who converted to Catholicism through his studies of the Bible as literature. Um, the other important point I want to make, the Egyptians gave the gold, gave gold to the Hebrews. The Hebrews took the gold with them. What happened to that gold? True. It became the golden calf. But after that, what happened to that gold? It became the Ark of the Covenant. So even back then, there is already in God's pedagogy the indication that all people are invited to worship Him. Because all people participate in the creation of the Ark of the Covenant, and then when the Temple of Mo when the Temple of Solomon is built, Solomon calls upon Hiram, who is the king of Tyre, pagan city, pagan king, to come and help him build the temple. The Catholic aspect of the kingdom was built in from day one, but it was easy to miss. Okay. The last thing I'll say is that you can take the plates and you can look at them on a personal level as well. Because that's the moral sense that you can apply to the plates. And you can see that through it all, through our own lives, God is constantly, constantly sending graces and sending plagues our way. Just as He did with Egypt, we need to realize that each and every one of us can be our own little Pharaoh. No, I'm not going to have it this way. And God sends us a bunch of Moseses who are telling us, who will point something to us, and we just don't want to listen. God doesn't abandon us. Sometimes, sometimes, in a sense, we wish He did. We wish that God leaves us in peace. But He doesn't, because He loves us too much. When you start keeping that love of God as a father in your head as you read this and much of his love by the way is maternal a lot of the maternal love is in, built in, in God right? when you start keeping that in mind and you read those passages what you see is how God loves us that's why scripture is called a love letter from God to us he's telling us how much he loves us and we love that part the part we don't love is to see how ugly we can be when we set ourselves to it Right? So you can use these texts as a point of meditation to help you also walk back in your life and say, what are the areas I need to work on? Where are the areas that I need to improve on? What do I have to do to become less of an Egyptian and more of a Hebrew? What do I have to do to become a true follower of Christ? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.